So this morning, I want to talk about a topic which I believe is actually crucial uh, to the survival <clears throat> of humans and the planet. But it's also very ordinary and um, very central. And it's about the connection between inner and outer. And about our ability and our direction towards more of a sense of interconnection and seeing how in our experience we feel separate, separated, um, disconnected, both individually and as um, a society, a culture. I think it's right at the heart of what we do in meditation. And so my intention is to explore that in pretty ordinary, down-to-earth ways. Hopefully, my intention. (laughs) You will be the discerning evaluator of whether that succeeds. Um, To do that today and next time. And to have uh, practices that we can take home with us, very ordinary practices that just help us to um, work more consciously with both seeing where we go into a mode of being, which is that of being separate, and, and how we might quite consciously shift towards more of a sense of interconnection (coughs) with appropriate boundaries, so to speak. I'll I'll say more about that qualification as we as we proceed. So from from one point of view, sometimes it can seem like our everyday lives are that of a bunch of separate beings just trying to manipulate the external world and our experience so we get what we want and don't suffer too much. And it can feel like that. We have to-do lists, which are what? They're kind of gets us very much into almost like an instrumental way of being, where I have to order, control, manipulate, strategize in order to have certain things happen. And along with that way of acting or behaving, (coughs) behaving, there can often be a sense of me here trying to enhance my experiences, especially have pleasant experiences and avoid unpleasant experiences. And I can have a sense of being separate, uh, disconnected from others when I'm in that, in that uh, mode. And there can be a very strong sense of being a self, as it were, in here and everything else out there the world, other people, the blame for all the problems, definitely often out there when we're in that mode. And there's that, there's a strong, in that mode, there can be a strong separation of self and other. We can call it separation of subject and object. And in that mode, we can also get certain things done. It's not simply confusion. You know, there seems to be, it has, seems to have a certain survival value or strategic value. And I'll invite you right now, experientially, what is it like to be in that mode? We may be a little bit in it now or a lot in it or not so much in it. Imagine yourself in that mode of here I am, 
and I have to manipulate the world, take care of things. Often that's activated when there's some anxiety or fear or a possibility of something not going right. So just for a moment, imagine yourself in that mode. What is that like as a mode of experiencing? Um, Separate self here, everything else is different, separate from me. You know, the chair or the cushion I'm sitting on, other people. It's almost like I'm looking out at experience and seeing what is other. So let yourself just for a moment, I'll take a minute or two, and just explore how that is for you. And I think it's there for all human beings to a certain extent. Just go there right now with mindfulness. What was that like? Familiar? How many people felt familiar? Um, any anxiety producing? You'd have, yeah. Sorry. Some contraction, yeah, to feel, yeah. Isolating, yeah. But familiar, right? We go in that mode sometimes, and sometimes hang out there a lot. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or or sometimes I mean the adrenaline may be necessary to get us into that alert mm-hmm. attitude, right? The saber-toothed tiger is around the corner. <laughs> I better summon, you know, get my um, energy going and not just be thinking about, you know, breakfast or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I felt the knot in my heart. Yeah, a knot. So feel, you know, so, so very helpful. Getting what I'm going to invite us to do is to study this more in the next week, as well as the, the sense of connection. Because I think that the close study is really a crucial part of our practice. So it's to feel the somatic aspects, the body, the knot, the adrenaline. Please. A separateness gives me peace. Yeah. Yeah. So the sense, sense can, can be some uh, pleasure in that. Yeah. Maybe, I, maybe just two more and then we'll go. You know, in a, it, I wouldn't, for me, it's related to, I wouldn't exactly call it peace. I'd call it, for me, I'd call it a sense that everything, like more of the organized. Every, yeah. Things aren't chaotic. The opposite yeah. of chaotic, but not necessarily in a way that feels, well, it doesn't feel connected, so that doesn't feel good to me, but it does feel organized and, and like I have control. Mm-hmm. Organized, ordered, a sense of control, mm-hmm. at least for a moment. I <laughs> <laughs> mean, last one, please. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Some sadness, and that may be. Um, that maybe when you're actually fully in that mode, that sad sadness may not be there. That may be from your mindfulness, and something actually is feeling along with that mode. Yeah. You know, so that that may not be inherent in that mode, but it's there right now. Yeah. So. This is one way that we are, often. Um, And clearly that sense of separation is connected both with um, 
being able to order, organize, control, which obviously has some value. It's a way, you know, and in the last few centuries, that I would say that more instrumental mindset is responsible for uh, tremendous advances, you know, in controlling the natural world. We know now that has a lot that has cost, but it's. I don't want to, as it were, say this is simply negative. There's certain, certain, clearly certain uh, ways that that instrumental mindset has been able to organize, control, and do things that make it possible to get oil, drive cars, and so forth. Um, and it also um, has some of the more negative features. And maybe if I had asked the same question a hundred years ago, I might have got a different response. <laughs> Hard to know. Um, so there's also this second broad way that we experience the world at times, which is that of feeling deeply connected with another person, with aspects of the natural world, maybe with even with myself. You know, that the strong boundary of subject and object, or self and other, isn't there in the same way. Either the boundaries don't seem there at all, or they seem more permeable. You know, we could think of, again, a lot of experiences we may have. We may have with people we're very close to. You know, the boundaries may not be there in the same way. People close to each other sometimes um, have the same dreams at night. Right? How many people have experienced that sometimes? Sometimes it happens. Same dreams or definitely the same thoughts, which could be not simply interconnection. It could be commonality of completely conditioned mind. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> so, uh, but in any case, we have those experiences. It can be the sense of permeability of boundaries that we have maybe raising children. How many people have experienced that? You know, who are in nature, in the natural world? How many people have experienced deep sense of connection in the natural world? You know, and there can be less of that sense of me here, everything else there, right? Something, another way of being is experienced. Um, there's a nice way of saying that that comes from the poet uh, Gary Snyder. He has a, a nice book, which is um, called The Old Ways. <coughs> and he, he expresses that uh, uh, possibility of these two modes in this way. We live in a universe, one turn in which it is widely felt all is one, and at the same time all is many. <coughs> the extra rooster and I were subject and object, until one evening, we became one. <laughs> so one, oneness with roosters. Um, not, not taught extensively by the Buddha, but, but still important. So we have that. And it, it really, uh, just reflecting on those two modes can really um, raise questions in our minds, right? especially if we find ourselves in the more instrumental mode a lot of our lives. You know, we can ask questions like, uh, who am I, really? Am I simply a separate being that is born and dies? Is that my basic nature? What is this about looking out at the world as if I'm continually, as it were, a stranger or an outsider or someone separate? Is that the fate of human beings and of, and of other, other beings? Or rather, um, am I, is my nature to be um, deeply connected? Am I uh, really... Uh, more accurately seeing reality when I have that sense of interconnection. If that's the case, how should I live? 
if I believe that, am I living to manifest that sense of interconnection? And probably all of us uh, are partly doing that. And we can ask, am I doing that in a way that really matches what I deeply believe? You know, and I and probably most of you might say, hmm, good question. I need to look at that. And I'll just remind you that um, when I take this role, it permits a certain expression, hopefully of insight, to come through. And I often say to myself, you should listen to what that guy says. Right? I think it's um, me saying these things doesn't mean that I have this all worked out. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> but it's, um, it's a privileged role, you know, and many of us uh, have something similar. We may be therapists or teachers or parents, and we take some variant of that role. But the, it's, it's a, I think, important question. Am I living according to that sense of what I really believe, and how much am I caught, we might say, in that mode of separateness and of self and other, subject-object, in here versus out there? Really, really crucial question. And I think, again, I think that it's uh, crucial for the quality of our own inner being, for the quality of our lives with others, and I think also for the survival of the planet, because that mode of having an instrumental relationship, an objectifying relationship to the uh, rest of the world, again, has there are certain achievements connected with it, but I think we clearly see that we've reached certain limits where we need to have a sense of interconnection with the whole planet be much more of a pervasive um, way of being or else we may not make it. So, so I, th- I believe that this looking at this inner-outer relationship is very crucial. I'll probably talk a little bit more about that larger uh, context next time. So here I want to, today I want to talk more about the basics. So there's a poem that I love, which I read here from time to time, that expresses that, that well, maybe that sense of confusion. I find myself in both this contracted mode at times, maybe a lot of the time, and, I've, and then sometimes I have these expansive states. And what do I make of that? You know, who am I? So this is Rumi, you know, our favorite Buddhist poet. <laughs> I have to say that at the same time that there's all this growing Islamophobia in the country, the best-selling poet in the United States is Islamic. What does that mean? Rumi. What is that? Anyway, there's some some disconnect there. So, Rumi, a poem called The Tavern. All day I think about it, and then at night I say it. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing? My soul is from elsewhere, I'm sure of that, and I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back around to that place, I will be completely sober. I'm like a bird from another continent, sitting in this aviary. The day is coming when I fly off, but who is it now in my ear who hears my voice? Who says words from my mouth, with my mouth? Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could taste one sip of an answer, I could break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. (laughs) So there's that beautiful poetic recognition of sometimes it feels like we're in prison for drunks or we're just caught in the contractedness, right? And uh, it can feel like a prison or... um, a painful place at times. And yet we also know that expansiveness. And what do we make of what what do we make of that juxtaposition? So what I want to explore particularly um, for the rest of the time talking right now and then uh, continuing next week 
is the importance of exploring in different ways that sense of separateness so we really know it. What is the separate self? And then also finding ways to develop the sense of interconnection. It's simple in that way. And it really is connected, I think, with the two broad ways that transformation occurs in meditation, in life, which is that on the one hand, we look at and we study our wounds, the places we're contracted, where there's suffering, where there's difficulty. And we have to study that carefully because we have to know our patterns well enough to um, both heal them and deconstruct them. We have to get really interested in our own patterns of contraction. Some of you may choose to leave at this point. (laughs) It's not easy. It's not painful. It's not always, also, it's not always appropriate to do all the time. If we're in a painful place, it's better to go with the second aspect first of transformation, which is to go towards the beautiful and the expansive and the opening and to develop further there and to do practices which help us move in that direction. For me, this is a simple way to look at what we do. And again, uh, the particular timing of the moment for me might, di- might um, dictate where I give attention. Again, if I'm in a very hurt place, going to the second area might be really, really crucial to if I have a lot of self-judgment to really work to cultivate care for self. You know, if I've been having a really hard time, go for beauty, go for what feels, has that sense of expansiveness. If I have a certain degree of stability and a certain degree of expansiveness, then it's really great to go and study the contracted places. And I, I like to say sometimes that our practice accelerates when we get interested in the patterns of our own suffering rather than see them as something simply to be got rid of to have a peaceful place, a peaceful state. That there's a certain degree of spiritual maturity that permits that interest in our own suffering. It's quite important. So those are the two wings here. Look at the, study the separate self and develop the expansive self, we might say, or the expansive way of being. So that first interest in looking at the separate self takes us back to the core teaching of the Buddha uh, called the teaching of anatta, or the teaching of not-self. Definitely one of the most confusing teachings around. You know. And I, I remember we, I explored this, I think two years ago, we did a series here, or I did a series, on the teaching of not-self or anatta. It's very confusing. Probably if I gave a spot quiz right now <laughs> on not-self. Um, How many not-selves would do well? (laughs) So um, it's a tricky area. And I think in deference to the Jewish holidays, uh, I'll express that through some of the best humor around is sort of Jewish Dharma humor, you know? So, you know, and there are whole websites devoted to this. Um, But um, two expressions two expressions of this confusion about not-self from, a, um, again, in honor of the new year and so forth. Um, if there's no self, whose arthritis is this? <laughs> Another sort of Jewish perspective. The Taurus says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says there is no self, so maybe we're off the hook. (laughs) You may be, you may be now in a state of deep confusion, but it it actually can be, I think, can be explicated because um, the the aim of the Buddha's critique was that of this was at what we might call the separate self, the separate, at the, at the, what he took to be an illusion 
of the separate, independent, permanent, singular self, which at the time that he was speaking was a commonly held view within what we now call the Hindu tradition. That there is a self that is singular and permanent and independent. And what he taught was that when we look closely at experience, we don't find that self. That it's it's an idea that we may have to make sense of experience, but that when we actually look closely at experience, we can see that the sense of self is very much an idea that is superimposed on experience. And part of what we do in meditation is we study that. So a big part of studying the sense of separation of inner and outer is to study when the sense of self appears in experience, in meditation and in daily life. So this is what I'll invite in part for the next week. Really look at where the self appears. Look at it in meditation. We can see that often it appears when there's either an actual or a possible strongly pleasant or strongly unpleasant experience. When there's a strongly pleasant experience, a sense of self arises, often it says, I want that, and grabs hold of it. And we study that in meditation. Or when there's some unpleasant experience, we push it away because I don't want that or I can't deal with that. That kind of points to partly some of the basis for the sense of self in survival issues. You know, what neuroscientists would call the reptilian brain. There's something about that um, drive for pleasure and to avoid pain. But we can study that because part of what we propose really here in meditation is that we can actually have a more mature relationship to pleasure and pain in which we're not driven and pulled by, by, those, by those forces. And, and so we study that. Partly we study it. What happens when I'm sitting here and I have a knee pain? And there can be this arising of a sense of self. And all of a sudden, I am separate from my knee pain. Or we can have a difficult emotion. Or we can remember a difficult interaction from yesterday. And all of a sudden, there's a very strong sense of self there, right? That person should come to Wednesday meditation more. (laughs) If, if, If that person would come he clearly would get over being so judgmental. (laughs) So, (laughs) there may be, so, okay, I I won't make any comment about that. You you got it, right? (laughs) You got the different aspects of that. So, um, So, we need to study that. We need to study how our minds form a sense of self. And again, I'm not saying that this is all simply wrong, but we want to study it. We want to study where the sense of self gets um, into that more contracted oppositional stance. We study it, we can study it in relation to our own experience, and we can study it in relation to others. And here I'm just inviting the study without really commenting on it so much or evaluating it. Just when does that sense of separateness form? And we can see it forming not simply in opposition to other people, but actually in opposition to our own parts of our own experience. The sense of self um, can manifest in internal experience. And we, we, we are invited to study that, really. Now, what's interesting, I'll just, I, I'm not giving a full exposition about not-self. Um, But I want to just mention a few more comments, which is that I think that the the focus of this questioning of the self is is a focus, as I mentioned, on the sense of separation, the sense of separate, contracted, 
self that's taken to be independent. It's not a critique of a more relational self. It's not a critique of a more interdependent self. And that gets confusing because of the language. But we can see from a number of passages that um, the Buddha actually wasn't saying that uh, the ultimate truth is that there's no kind of self whatsoever. He wasn't saying that. That's often confused, I, I believe. And, pe- and even the translation, it's a better translation to say not self than no self. No self is not a good translation of anatta. Uh, the A is in anatta is very much like the A that we have in English, where we say amoral or um, asexual or something like that. It means, simply means not. Um, N-O-T. And, and so um, once the Buddha was asked whether there's a self, very directly, and he didn't answer, you might have thought he would just say, okay, haven't you been listening to my talks? Well, of course there's no self, but he didn't say that. He, he didn't answer the question. And it really points to the way that he was really focusing on one kind of um, confusion. And that when he was asked, why didn't you give an answer to that fellow? His response was, if I had said there is a self, he would have fallen to one extreme. And if I had said there is no self, he would have gone to the other extreme. The truth is more in the middle. You know, and Jack Kornfield's teacher, Achen Chah, said something very similar. He said, the teachings about no self are not true. <laughs> the teachings about a self are not true as well. So I, I, that should clear everything up. Right? <laughs> but so it's actually getting a little more subtle. But do you get that? That, that it actually what's being targeted is that sense of separation that we looked at initially. And that, that when we are more in connection, there can be a sense of self, but it's not the sense of separate, contracted, independent, everything else is different than me, self. That's what's being questioned. And that's, that's important to see. And so we, we're invited to study that. You know, because actually the Buddha also said that when we really have this interconnected way of being, he actually sometimes used language and said, this is like a great self. He used the word maha-atta, which is very, it's the same word that's used for Gandhi when, when people use the language Mahatma Gandhi. It means great soul or great self. And the Buddha sometimes used that language for pointing to what the, what the full development of understanding looks like. It's interesting, isn't it? So we get confused by this not-self teaching. So we have, you know, when we then look to how we have been conditioned in the West, we see that particularly in the last few centuries, that sense of separation has accelerated. It's complex, I believe, because I think it's connected with evolutionary aspects in which we are much more individuated as human beings. We have much more attention to our own inner lives, which I think has positive aspects, you know, In other words, we've moved away from an exclusively communal, tribal way of being in which everyone does the same thing. And there's not much room for individuality. You know, where it's like I taught several years in Kentucky, and I remember teaching on the theme of community at times. And I had a lot of students from the Eastern Mountains. I remember one of them saying to me when we were talking about community, community. I want to get as far from community as I can, <laughs> which was pointing to the negative aspects of community, you know, that way in which individuality could not flourish. So I think there are developmental aspects of this. But what's happened, and we were, I think now we're also increasingly aware of, as it were, the negative aspects. The sociologist Robert Bella talks about the Western development of what he calls hyper-individualism you know, in which the ultimate 
triumph of Western civilization is to have everyone isolated sitting with a computer <laughs> with DSL, right? Uh, I'm exaggerating some, but sometimes it feels like that. That's where Western, where does Western culture really end up with each of us with our own computers, you know, sending 3,000 text messages to each other a week, you know? Is that, is that where we end up? Um, so when we look to the way Western culture is developed, we can see that there are many ways in which that sense of a separate self has accelerated. It's part of the conditioning we have and have to look at. You know, we can see it clearly in terms of the separation from the natural world. You know, the way that the world has become objectified. And many of us, I think, are very interested in going in the opposite direction. But we can see how that's happened. We take the world has become objectified. Everything is there as if it's, if it's useful to me. And I take, you know, our ordinary mode of being is to take things for granted. Right? We only notice things generally when they're not working. You know, we don't really pay attention. Everything is out, is like a set of objects out there for me to use for my pleasure. You know, and sometimes, you know, and nature off in, in many ways has turned into that, right? Certainly the, with the industrial culture, it's like that, you know. And so we have that kind of sense of separation has been accelerated, sense of separate self. And there's also that sense of separate self in terms of our um, disconnection with others. You know, the, the breakdown of community in, in many, many forms. The way that we may often feel more isolated. You know, the, in, in, again, this, these are generalities, but, but we can, I think we know that, the way that we can have a sense of separation and distance and feel disconnected from the larger world at times, right? That's, that's quite, again, in some of, some of the media, which in some ways are helpful, accelerate that. And we can even be quite separate from ourselves. You know, one part of what meditation does is it reconnects us with ourselves. But we could, you know, in, in the large trajectory of history, what we're doing here is like rediscovering our own inner being, our connection with our bodies, with our emotions. And so, you know, some of the breakthrough books of the last 20 years have to do with emotional intelligence, as if we were disconnected from our emotions or disconnected from our bodies, right? There's that famous line in the James Joyce short story in the collection Dubliners where the first line is, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> so, so the invitation that I'll offer for next time is to study that. Study how that sense of separation manifests for you. Some of that will be painful at times. You know, it's, it's not always pleasant, but it's really crucial. How does your sense of self develop? What situations make you more separate? And this isn't to blame or to judge. We all have this. We all share in this. But it's to say that we need to study it closely if we want to deconstruct it. We need to know what's there. We need to know what kind of situations brings out my sense of becoming more contracted, separate, and rigid. What does that? I'll, I'll get in a moment just to questions. Yeah. And then I also want to invite us to see when do we feel more expansive and interconnected? You know, what are our experiences in which we feel that? And I'll also invite you to deliberately cultivate them more in next week. So deliberately cultivate more love. Okay? Homework. More love. <laughs> more love. More of a sense of interconnection in whatever ways make, make sense to you. And, just, and also explore what that is like. What happens to the self when you feel connected to nature or you're with a child that you... Just feel that permeability of boundaries or someone you care very much about. What happens? You know, how much do we, how much is there kind of a relaxation of that sense of separation? What is that like? And next time I'll bring in some particular further practices for 
you know, developing that more uh, expansive self. You know, so the primary focus here is on, if you, if you feel um, resonant with this, is to really study that sense of separation, but also invite the expansiveness to be there. So I'll stop here. We have some time for talking together, but let's just take about 30 seconds or a minute to sit quietly. We have some time for um, talking together for a little less than 15 minutes. So you, you had a question, please, or a comment. Well, I was wondering, how do you work with yourself at self um, discovery or receptiveness? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you work with that? Because um, that just seems like spiraling. <laughs> yeah. So the question is how to look at the, the separate self constructively without becoming judgmental. Feeling the emotions. Um, well, it's fine to feel the emotions, um, and they, you know, and they can. I think it's fine. Some they may take us to to grief at times or to sadness, and I think that's fine. So, the generally, um, I think that would be part of the process. You know, it's it's like most of our practice. We want if we um, can stay present and mindful with those feelings, that's fine. If we get, as it were, lost in them, then we want to come back. Lost in them would mean that they're, as it were, taking us over rather than really being, being present with it. Um, so I, I would say to, um, a lot of it's to really notice really small things. Like um, doing, studying in meditation how the self forms in just very ordinary, simple ways. You know, like, I mean, a lot of it is to notice how our thoughts are. A lot of our thoughts are quite self-centered. That that sounded like uh, a blazing insight into the totally obvious. (laughs) Um, But the invitation is to really look into that. They are self-centered. There are a lot of, you know, it's, they, and they keep going, right? They don't. Are there, I myself getting mad at myself at some point. Yeah. So just just check that. If you notice yourself being judgmental or being mad, just be mindful of that and try not to follow that. And and then and just to notice. And I was thinking to notice the thoughts can be helpful. Just to you know, when thoughts take us away, it's hard to be mindful of them, but we can sometimes afterwards reflect, what was that thought about? Or if we can experience it in the moment, uh, or just after it's occurred, to have a sense, um, is that, what, what is that about, that thought? It may be, you know, sometimes we sit and we just try to organize our day or figure something out that's unresolved or whatever. Yeah, thank you. And remind me of your name? Shannon. Shannon, thank you. Please. Is that in relation to others? Like, for example, if you are angry at somebody, you want to see whether you're being self-centered, or what is that? How, how does this feel? Because you said, look at the situations that come past you. Yeah, yeah. It's um, so if if I'm angry, uh, often with anger, I go into a polarized relationship. Not not necessarily. I can. It's possible to have anger within the context of love and connection. Kind of rare, but it's possible. Um, But very often, when I'm angry, my relationship, it could be with myself as well, I could be angry with myself, but with another person, let's say, 
tends to make me more polarized. I may have thoughts that make me right, other person wrong. Right? And that tends to increase a sense of separation. So anger would be a very good to study that. And, and sometimes it's just to tune in, you know, if you can. I mean, anger is very compelling and dramatic and so forth, so it's hard sometimes to be mindful. But maybe, especially if it occurs in meditation, you can just ask, okay, this is happening. I can feel a kind of polarization in my thoughts, even sometimes in my body. What does that feel like? What does that look like? You know, sometimes when you study it closely enough and you notice yourself in an interaction with someone in the present and something occurs and you get angry, sometimes you can feel that process of polarization happening right in the moment. And sometimes when you notice that, you can say, I'm not going to go there. So does that help? That's for self, sense of self. Yeah, we're looking for where a really rigid, polarized sense of self develops. Um, and, and anger would be a great example of that because that's common. Again, not necessarily always the case, but it, ca- it very often is. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thank you. Please. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about not self, yeah. um, what I started thinking, or my question was, does not self um, mean when you are So the question is about um, whether not-self can be interpreted as being caught in a, a negative thinking pattern. or um, No, I think I, I'm interpreting that not-self is a teaching. Okay, it's a, it's a teaching that I'm interpreting as pointing to this sense of a separate, polarized, distanced self in relationship to others and in relationship to the world. And so um, what's being taught in the teaching of not-self, as I'm interpreting it, is that that sense of separate, permanent, independent, distinct self is a kind of an illusion and one that's also connected with suffering. Um, in a way, it would be to, it's pointing to look to where we form that polarized, separate sense of self, and to study it, and to see that it uh, is often, um, can be connected with suffering. Um, and that it also doesn't represent uh, reality as it were, that it's actually, when we look closely, we see that it's an addition, sort of, as I was saying, I was using language, when we look to meditative experience, for example, we can have more of a sense, and I was, this was an exercise I was going to do, but just, even right now, just for 30 seconds, can you look at your experience and just see it as this flow? There's a body sensation here, a sound, a thought, just this continual flow, what interrupts that flow or what makes a solid self appear in the flow? That's what we're asked to study. Just looking like right now, you can do it with eyes closed, eyes open. Can you be just with, for 30 seconds with your experience as a flow of one type of experience after another, a thought, an emotion, a body sensation, a sight, a sound. Where does the sense of self appear in that flow? That's what we study when we do a lot of meditation. We look more carefully and we see that 
um, that sense of self does appear, it sort of stops the flow quite a bit. And we're actually not aware at that, at that time. And we can study that. And again, it's not to, uh, this is a totally no blame, no shame study. Blaming or shaming is actually, guess what? <laughs> so, so that's why we use mindfulness. We just, okay, blaming, shaming, okay, back to the breath. <laughs> and, we, and we study. Please. Yeah. Like we'll have insights. Yeah. And that that actually interrupts the flow. Yeah. And then I'll start thinking about that. And it's like I have had that insight. Yeah. But if there's no self, who's having the insight? So yeah. Don't think about this too much. <laughs> It, it is confusing. It is intellectually confusing. And like I say, it's, um, yeah, it can be, but... Um, and it, it really actually is... Um, it really is a lifetime study, actually. So don't expect just, oh, I've had full insight into not-self in this next week of... But uh, it's an interesting question, because... because, because um, um, there may be an insight, but you can also, um, there can also be a self that, as it were, appropriates the insight and says, good work. <coughs> and it's interesting to study both of those. Yeah. I'll just tell, you, tell one short story and then we'll get to your, your point or question. Um, but I remember I, I was doing a 10 day meditation retreat and I was working with Christopher Titmus, who I was, I was in England, and the, he gave me the instructions for the next 10 days, don't do anything. Don't meditate, but also don't be distracted. Because <laughs> I think he was, he was, I think, skillfully seeing how we can also get caught up and have this really great meditator self <laughs> that's really doing good noticing of everything and take credit for it and so forth. And so um, for me, this was an exciting practice. It was challenging. You know, not, you know, I, would, I was in England. I was just walking through the fields doing nothing. You know, kind of, some people could look at that and make cynical comments about meditation. But um, uh, it was actually very illuminating because I was watching all my attempts to do, all the habits of doing. Like, and he was pointing to a kind of freedom from the doer, which is an aspect of the self. And what was really funny for me was that at certain, um, a certain point, I, uh, I was really flowing with not, not doing. And at one point, I, I heard a comment arise in my mind, I'm really doing, not doing really well. <laughs> I'm a really non, good non-doer. <laughs> So I think that's part of it. You know, we can take the insight. But at this point, I would say just study the appropriation of the insight by the self. Because it happens. You know, it's like, it, in meditation, it just happens all the time. You know, um, you know I mean, we'll find ourselves, <clears throat> really, I'm really with the flow. I'm really, I'm really studying not-self really well. I'm one of the best... <laughs> I am one of the best students of not self. <laughs> so, and humor is great, right? Because it's humor both because there's a lot of paradox. It's funny. We're human beings. We're kind of bumbling generally. <laughs> I speak for myself. <laughs> so, please, you had a, a point or a question. Yeah. It's um, since there is no 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 self. I mean, part of the idea is that we are a collection of molecules and atoms and things yeah. happening, but we're not. We're interdependent on everything around yeah. us. We don't exist as a self 
interdependent of anything else. Yeah. As this question was saying, but connected with everything else. Yeah. So we still would have a thought in here, but it's that it's not, we're still, we're, we're interdependent. We're not. Yeah. Connected. Yeah, it's, in, it'd be, it's interesting to look at that, that issue. I, my sense from my own inner experience and from talking with people is it's interesting. It might be that as we have more of a relational sense of self and more of an expansive sense of self, there still might be the idea that's really a good insight. Rather than, oh, I'm really cool. I had a good insight. So there might be a reflection that this is a really important insight or this is good for my relational self, I think would have a qualitative difference from something that was more self-centered and more related to the separate self. That's very interesting, isn't it? So you're, you're right, I think, that there's, there's something still going on, but the, kind of the center of uh, the energy is shifting towards something, and that, that's what's interesting to look at. That's what I'll, I'll invite you know, in the next week. If you, how, many, how many would like to look further at your separate self and your expansive self in the next week and hopefully come back and... Um, I'll invite that. And, you know, I was, I was, there was one little exercise. I was reflecting on, the, on this topic yesterday, and I was finding that it just helped me. This is another little exercise to do. Just to be going around, just, you know, you're walking down the street in Berkeley or um, San Rafael, and just stop for a moment and ask, Am I forming a firm boundary between inner and outer? What's happening right now? What's it look like? Because our habitual mode may be to do that, but we can also, just in the the very moment, you know, how am I relating to this bell? And partly, one of the ways that we move towards this relational perspective is through cultivating this broad awareness. There can be a broad awareness without a rigid sense of self. And that is actually one of the vehicles. I think I'll talk more about that next time. And so simply for me to be aware with this bell tends to create more of a field in which there is some experience here and some awareness of something there. Are you following me, Sam? And so just going into being present and with something and moving out of that rigid, okay, bell, you know, or something like that can be, can be, it's a very interesting exercise just to ask in the moment, am I creating a strong inner outer split? Just in a very, just moment to moment. I found it, I was doing that a good part of yesterday. It's very, very interesting. I mean, just ordinary activities, not particularly sitting on a cushion, but just walking around town, going, you know, seeing people playing tennis. Right? Maybe, did you have something, Rick? Yes. Maybe last, um, last one. Yeah. This broad awareness question I've been um, working on for quite some time. Um, because as a photographer, I wanted to try and illustrate, and, and it's interesting that you said between me and the bell, I've actually, I'm creating photographs for an exhibition which is spinning the, a frame and spinning the centerpiece of two pictures like you and the bell, and if you blow on it, if you blow the centerpiece, it spins and it almost becomes one. And I've done this with a bear and a spider. And I've also done it with a heron and a surfer. And if you spin them, if you blow on them, and see them in a series, like a flow, it kind of shows you the interconnectedness between everything. Maybe you can bring one in? Good. So let's just sit quietly for 30 seconds or a minute to finish. (coughs) And again, I'll invite those two modes of practice. One, studying the sense of separate self, and then also deliberately cultivating that sense of a more relational, expansive self. Could be in nature or with people close to you. Nothing dramatic, but just, just opening up to that. And so just to let be present what may have been helpful. 
and any intentions which come out of the morning. Just before I ring the bell, I'll say that I am planning next week to make space for three or four people to have 15-minute um, conversations about practice. And if you're interested, you could come up after, after the bell's rung. Be between 11.20 and 12.20 or so next week. And so in closing, we remember that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others, really following the theme of the day. And we offer the fruits of our time, recognizing interdependence out into the world for the benefit and healing of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.